No town makes everything it needs. And the second you go outside of town to get something that you need, I need an automobile. Okay, send my money to Detroit. I send my money to Alabama, wherever they're making it. That's going out the drain. And what happened in the little town that I was in is all those wheat farmers just got more and more efficient. And, you know, there was a farm every quarter when I grew up. And today there's probably maybe five or six massive farmers Instead of farming one quarter, they're farming 20 quarters out there. And when all those farmers left, they quit going into town on Saturday night and buying at those stores. And all of a sudden, that money that was coming in from the outside started to dry up. And so those local market stores started to fail. Now the meat shop fails. Now the newspaper shop fails, you know, on and on and on. That happens all over the country. But there's a way out of that, and it's it's working within the system. It's working within free enterprise. It's working within capitalism, and that is get back on the innovation train. The second you can convince a kid to stay in town and, you know, he gets on the Internet and, you know, maybe he's doing coding for somebody or building websites or maybe he's doing engineering drawings and uh, he's doing it for, you know, somebody in a, in a big city, and they send him a check. That check coming in is new water coming into that town. Just repeat that over and over again. Do more of that. Find kids that can sell to the outside world, and and the fortunes of that town will turn around. I would absolutely guarantee it. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. A few of you may remember our audience has grown, uh, gosh, I don't know, 10,000% since then. Uh, but a few of you may remember a few years back when I interviewed a guy named Chris Gibbons. Chris is the founder, one of the uh, intellectual forces behind the idea of economic gardening, which if you've heard one of my talks or one of my speeches from around the country, you've likely heard me talk about economic gardening. It's a concept that I think every local community should be looking into. Chris has recently published a new book called Economic Gardening, and I got a hold of him and asked him if he would come back on the podcast again to discuss it. From Colorado, welcome back to the Strong Nuts Podcast, Chris Gibbons. Uh, thank you, Chuck. Appreciate it. It's really nice to chat with you. This book, Economic Gardening, you are selling for the uh, the very inflated price of, of what? How do, you, how do I get this book? Actually, you can download it from our website, which is economicgardening.org. There's no charge for it. I wrote on this book for, I don't know, four or five years now, and I decided, you know what? I just need to get it finished and get it out there. So it's for free. It's beautiful, and it's for free, and I've gone through it. I've been following your stuff for years, and so a lot of this story I'm very familiar with. You do a great job of outlining kind of where these ideas come from, what the inspiration is, and how you can uh, how you can put things into effect. Can we just, as an introduction here, for those of you that don't know about economic gardening, can you just give a little 101 overview of what economic gardening is? Sure. It is basically the idea that you can grow economies uh, using an entrepreneurial approach, that was the core idea 30 years ago when I was working at Littleton. 
And uh, we honed in on this small group of uh, companies called Stage 2 companies. They're about 10% of the total, but they produce around 40% of the jobs. So, you know, they punch way above their weight. And then over the years, uh, we started to figure out what it is that those companies need. They mostly need uh, sophisticated information. They need the same information that big companies need. They just don't have the the tools, and a lot of times don't even know that they exist. So the whole idea is to help those stage two companies scale. Uh, they're going to be local companies in a community, and so they're going to create jobs uh, in, in a local community. But uh, that's the kind of short version. I feel like one of the important things is the difference between what we would consider an entrepreneur and someone who would be like an investor. I know here in town, there was a Dunkin' Donuts that was started. And it, to start the Dunkin' Donuts, you needed, you know, a half million dollars in net worth. And you needed, like, there, there were all these things that basically described someone who was an investor. You're not dealing with investors. You're dealing with entrepreneurs. Can you describe a little bit the difference? You know, these are people who start a business, who think it up and put it in place. And particularly by the time we pick them up, they've had at least a million dollars in sales, and they've hired at least 10 people. So, uh, you know, they've got proof of uh, market. They've got some proof of management skills, just the sheer fact they've hired that many people. But uh, the people we deal with typically are going to own the company. Uh, they're going to run that company. They're probably going to stay with that company their entire life. Uh, you know, maybe give it to their children or, or whatever. But essentially, these are people who create new companies. They're, they're not a franchise. They're not a, uh, you know, running somebody else's operation. They, they have thought up something new in terms of product and services and uh, are out there in the big world selling it. I found it really interesting in the book how you get into, essentially, you, you call it in Chapter 4, the Handbook for Humans and the uh, Temperament. We use that internally here too. I think like you say, not as a way to say good or bad, but to understand maybe how people think. Why did you include a whole chapter on human temperament? Well, uh, it was part of a bigger uh, thing that we did, and that is we were trying to find root problems. When, when we first started this 30 years ago, we, we had all these really you know, sophisticated tools and we were working with people, but the, the companies weren't growing and we were going what's going on here? We've got some of the best things going and, and they're still not growing. And over oh, a period of a decade, probably, we kind of found these five root problems that you've got to get those solved before you can move on to growth. And one of those root problems uh, happened to be temperament. We know that you know there's certain kinds of temperaments that do well with scaling companies. Uh, we use Myers-Briggs, if you're familiar with that, or, or Kersey, actually. But uh, the... Uh, STJs and the MTJs, if you're familiar with that terminology at all, uh, they have a, a tendency to run high-growth companies. They're about maybe 23% of the total uh, personalities, and they're running you know, maybe 80% of the high-growth companies. So that uh, was one of the things that caught our attention, but also how to put those teams together because the core of temperament is preferences. And so we're evidently born with a preference like being right-handed and left-handed. So I'm right-handed. I'll use that example. But we also have preferences for introversion and extroversion. Most people can spot that. That's not hard to see. And, and you can you don't have to be told that somebody's introverted when you see them sitting over in the corner uh, at a party. 
But as it turns out, the management team needs all of those various preferences that show up in, in temperament. One of the things we found is if you can put together a team that sort of, uh, we call it seeing uh, off four sides of a ship, you know, a preference is kind of like a set of filters that allows you to see certain things and you, and you kind of discount other things out there. And so it allows you to see in a direction, if you will. I can, I can see uh, kind of into the future pretty easily. I'm, I'm, I've got that preference. I'm not as good about immediate sensing things that are right in front of me. That's the reason I got married to my wife. She does. <laughs> yeah. takes care of our checkbook and, you know, actually make sure uh, that I got my luggage packed when we get ready to go somewhere, things like that. So it, that same combination that kind of makes the marriage work is also makes the management team work if you understand that everybody there is good at certain things and kind of left-handed. I'm a right-handed person, so they're left-handed at other things. It doesn't mean I can't do left-handed things. Uh, I'm a fairly introverted person, and I spent 25 years traveling to all 50 states and seven foreign countries making presentations, and on paper, you would say an introverted person can't do that, but I did. I learned how to do something left-handed, but given the choices, I prefer to do things right-handed. You know, just let me do what I'm really good at. And so, but we have these other issues that are in the business that are going to be left-handed for me. But if I know and understand that you are very good at something that I'm not good at, then you kind of cover my weaknesses. And so you can build a management team around that core principle without getting into being right and wrong. That's what I love about preferences is it's not an issue of judging people of being right and wrong. It's just who's good at this? We always talk about football teams, and if you had two people, you know, one of them was big and strong but pretty slow and not very agile, and the other one was smaller and fast and agile, and you put that small, fast guy up there on the line, you know, he's going to be a failure. But but it's simply because you got him slotted wrong. Put him in the backfield. Let the big, strong guy be in the line. It's what was the strength of each one of those shows up as a failure only because you get people slotted wrong. So we come at it from that standpoint using a, a, there's about four or five uses of temperament, but one of those is how to build those management teams and let people play to their strengths, you know, get them slotted right so they can do right-handed stuff, assuming you're right-handed. How hard is it for entrepreneurs to enter into a conversation like that? And we're going to get into a little bit again, the the edge of chaos concept, because I think it's a, it's a fascinating one, but you know, you're dealing with in an entrepreneurial community, you're, you're dealing with people who have a vision. The reason they've been successful is often is because they're kind of headstrong. How have you found people with an entrepreneurial mindset to be in terms of taking this kind of team building advice and, and maybe acknowledging their blind spots? It really depends on uh, whether they've got problems that are temperament-based or not. Not every company's got a temperament issue. They've they, they sort of intuitively figured it out. That you, you hear all the time about partners that say, uh, well, I'm, I'm the marketing guy and he's the book guy or the bookkeeping guy, the financial guy. And, you know, they have intuitively figured out that they've got different strengths and, and don't get in each other's category out there. And so sometimes you, you just don't have problems, but they are most likely to pay attention and accept what you're talking about if it reflects what they're what they're dealing with and we're pretty good about spotting temperaments and uh, we'll bring up and say is this an issue 
and we'll describe uh, some kind of temperament conflict or some kind of you're lacking a temperament. The, the number of engineering companies that cannot market is astounding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think most people recognize that. And it's not a it's not a judgment about them. It's not a good or bad. It's just it's just that engineers are you know that if the engineering side is right handed, the marketing is left handed to them. And so if you start talking about that issue, they're all shaking their heads and they go, Yeah, yeah, we know that. We 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 see it all the time. All we do is give them a framework for how to think about what the problem is, and then that allows you to, how to solve the problem. It's you know you can solve that problem with uh, with go finding a marketing temperament, uh, pretty pretty easy. It's a pretty simple uh, uh, you know suggestion to them. The biggest part of your book is about complex adaptive systems. This is one of those places where you know I think I intuitively understand you, and maybe vice versa, but. This also feels like the place where your conversation has been surrounded increasingly with greater awareness. I, I feel like back in the 90s, there weren't as many people talking about this. And I feel like today, it's almost like socially we've advanced to where this is not a crazy thing. Do you feel that way too about the whole idea of understanding the complex adaptive nature of, say, economic development? I do, and you know there was no faster way to kill a party than talk about complex exactly exactly twenty years ago. However, if you get down to the point of trying to understand that the, the core thing that they found out that the guys that put this together were down at the Santa Fe Institute in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and these were the Los Alamos scientists. So these are the A bomb guys. But this is a pretty smart group of people that started out to figure this out. The most important thing they found out is there's two systems operating. There's a mechanical system, same input through the same process, gets you the same output. You put in uh, aluminum in the machine and you get a can every time. You don't get a car door every once in a while. You certainly don't get squirrels every once in a while. The other system, the biological system, doesn't work that way. You don't know what the output's going to be. And so once we figured that out, and it's like, wow, that feels a lot closer to what we're dealing with in business because you got both of those systems operating. You, you got the mechanical, you know, the, all your accountants, you know, that works out the same every time. The accountants of the Middle Ages would get to the exact same place as accountants would today. They, they would all balance exactly the same. The engineers and their math, if you can make a bridge stand up in Roman times, you can make them stand up today. But you got this other side, and that's the employees, the managers, and the customers where you know, it just never goes right. It's like every time you think you're going to just, the top guy is going to say something and the organization is going to kick in and do it, there's all kinds of other things going on because it's a biological system. You know, you got people who don't like each other competing for the vice president job. You got people who, you know, go to lunch together. You know, you maybe have people who date each other. There's all kinds of reasons about why the biological system uh, is not nearly as controllable as the mechanical system. Once we had that uh, lens, that way of seeing it, a whole bunch of things fell into place. And most of the time is when you start putting mechanical rules in a biological system, that's where things just go to heck. So, I mean, that's kind of a short version. There's a lot, lots of variations of what they found out. But the thing about it is when I was going down to their uh, high-altitude conferences down in Santa Fe, and I would come back and I would say, 
guys, this is, this is what it feels like when we're dealing with these growth companies. It just feels like things are, you know, kind of right on the edge of chaos. And it's like they operate differently than those stage one companies. It's a different culture. It's a different tone. It's a different way of, of thinking and acting. And it fit well into those two systems that they were telling us about. So we adopted uh, that whole approach immediately. So say that I'm a uh, city planner or a city economic development director, and I come to you and I say, you know what, I was over in this other place here, and they had a really nice streetscape and decorative lights and uh, fancy benches. I think that that's what we're going to do. And in fact, I'm going to go get a grant for us to do decorative benches, and I'm going to sell that as an economic development tool. Give me some advice. It's part of the package because one of the things that we know about entrepreneurs running growth companies is they want to live in nice towns. And so and when I was at Littleton, we always said, you know what? We need to be a nice town. We need to have parks. We need to have our downtown looking good. We need to have amenities that the public sector can provide. That's part of the package because it's the environment around these entrepreneurs. But it doesn't affect the actual growth of the company itself. It just says that entrepreneur likes that town, wants to live in that town, is likely to stay in that town, is likely to put down roots in that kind of town. So I wouldn't argue that it's you know completely off the charts, but I wouldn't also argue that it's the be-all, end-all answer to economic development. It's a little small piece that helps make a community uh, more attractive to where these entrepreneurs want to live. But it's not driving the economy by any any means whatsoever. What drives the economy is selling innovation to external markets. If you had to take 30 years of what I've learned out there, it's that sentence. <laughs> it's like, first of all, you got to sell outside the community because if you think of communities being like a bathtub and, and uh, money being like the water in it, all the money that's circulating around in the bathtub is our local businesses. So I do your printing and you run the restaurant and the money flows back and forth. But what happens is some of that money leaves our town. It goes down a, a drain. Somebody goes down to Disney World. Somebody buys an automobile from Detroit. Some of that money, some of that water leaves the tub. And so you've got to refill it on the other end with the faucet. And the faucet are those people who are selling external, part one of the sentence, and then they're selling innovation because commoditization is the root of poverty, at least in my opinion. But if you sell innovation, you're selling wealth and bringing wealth into the community. That's what you got to understand. Doing something on Main Street is you know, a small piece off to the side. If you don't sell innovation externally, the rest of it is never going to work. All right, let me give you the second scenario then. We want to attract the best businesses we can. We want to attract jobs to our community. So we're going to go build an industrial park, a business park, put in all the sewer and the water and millions of dollars of investment. And then we're going to give those lots away as cheap as we can, because if we can create, you know, get people to move here and create jobs, that's how we're going to grow our economy. What would Chris Gibbons tell me in reaction to that advice? Well, having spent 30 years debating that exact subject with economic developers, uh, there's several things that are in there. First of all, uh, it doesn't happen very often. There's about 5,000 economic development agencies or professionals, I should say, in the country. And in any given year, if you follow the, you know, the site uh, selection people, 
they might do 200, 300 deals. So I'm always going, well, what about the other 4,700 people that were out there? What did they do? How, how did they justify what they're doing? So first of all, it just doesn't happen very often. Secondly, if you're going to take money, so now I'm a business here in town and you come and say, you know what, we're going to raise your taxes and we're going to give it to this company moving in, I'm going to go, wait a minute, go with that again? <laughs> Why are you taking my money and giving it to them? Why don't you take their money and give it to me and I'll grow businesses? So they're just kind of a moral ethics in my mind. You know, I, There are people who argue with me all the time and you know, they, they've got points to make also. But I'm always going... Why are you helping one particular group of people when other people can produce jobs also? The other issue is what kind of jobs came in. In a lot of communities, they're looking for the lowest price place to do business. And so that means they're a commoditized industry. Costs are important because the only way you win in commodity industries is to have the lowest price. So I always use salt. You know, you sell salt for two bucks and I sell it for a buck eighty. To the consumer, it's like, this is a short conversation. <laughs> I'll, I'll take the cheap one. Thank you. So anytime it's, you know, your product or your service is exactly the same and the consumer's going, I can't tell any difference between you guys. Okay, I'll take the cheaper one. That cheaper one means that you constantly have to drive down prices to stay in the game, which means you got to drive down expenses. And those expenses are employee wages. That's a big chunk of a lot of businesses out there. And it's like every year we got to cut labor costs. And so now you start outsourcing labor to Asia or you bring in robots or you're doing all sorts of things out there. And when somebody comes in that is looking for the cheapest place to do business, in my mind, bells go off. That's like, that's probably a commoditized industry. I'd go check it out to be sure. But if it is and they locate in your town, if your standard of living starts to rise and people want to get raises and make more money, they're going to go, oh, that's a labor cost for us. You making more money is not in our interest because that's a labor cost, and we're in a business where you have to have the lowest price and the lowest cost, and then they get up and move again, or they ask for another incentive or that sort of thing. So there's kind of a philosophical argument that always bothered me a little bit about bringing companies in. I've got another scenario I want to run by you, but I want to take a diversion here because you said something really interesting correlating the wages people are paid with the type of business. And I want to ask you, how is it that stage two companies, the entrepreneurial companies that are essentially importing capital and, and as you say, exporting innovation outside, how are they able to pay increasing wages? Why is that associated with that kind of company? It's really a good question, and it's something we argued about for about 10 years. But here's what we finally decided is when you innovate, so I, I've got now a new product, and because it's brand new, right now I have no competitors out there. And I go over to uh, the customer over here, and I say, okay, here's the product, and here's the price we want. And the, the customer's going, wow, that, that's a pretty high price there. And then it, the customer says, but I can't buy it anywhere else. You're the only people that do it. So what you have is a temporary monopoly. The federal government will not allow you to have a permanent monopoly. They'll take you to court for that. But innovation is a temporary monopoly all of the time. It's like I've got something and nobody else does. That's what Apple does continually. It's like it brings new things to the market. You know, Samsung's hot on their tail. It may be 
18 months or so, and they're able to duplicate that. But during that time period, there's high margins on that. And once you got high margins, now you've got a lot of money sloshing around in the business. And not only that, but because we invented something new, my employees probably have skills and knowledge that are not available out there, so they're more valuable. They can command higher wages. So the whole thing works around the idea that we just brought in a big chunk of money, both to our business and to our employees, and that's good right up until the point competition figures it out and duplicates. So Samsung builds uh, you know, the, the smartphone, and it's got all the same features on it. And then the second that happens, the prices start to drop. And, and every time Apple brings something new to the market, we know they, you know, they, they price it at 800 or 1200 And, you know, within the year, it's dropped down to 400 And because that, that process is at work out there, that commoditization process is working. So the only way to make that sustainable is you just constantly have to innovate. It's just as soon as you get it online, Apple's back to the you know drawing benches and saying, what else are we going to do, guys? Because they're hot on our tail here. And we're all making a bunch of money here, and we're all you know pretty wealthy in the Bay Area, but we do it because we live on innovation. You go to the Midwest, you go to the Plain States, that innovation starts to fall off a lot because they're in commodity businesses. They're selling, you know, maybe I'm a natural resource town. Most of the small towns in this country are natural resources. So they sell things that are commodities. They sell wheat. They sell lumber. They sell, you know, fishing or mining or all of those things that the, the small rural towns do. But you know what? Wheat in I grew up in Oklahoma in a little wheat farming town. Wheat in, in that town looked a lot like wheat in Kansas and a lot like wheat in Canada and Argentina. <laughs> and so you can sell it just a few cents above the cost of production out there, and there was never any margin. There was no money to be floating around to be paying anybody higher salaries. So that core principle that commoditization is the root of poverty, this is Gibbons talking, this is not written up in the textbook anywhere, uh, and that innovation is the root of wealth is real fundamental to economic gardening. I, you're going to have a hard time talking me out of that. I wouldn't I mean, try. I'm on the same page with you. Let me give you my third scenario. And this is one I actually worked on myself. And you can guess what side I, I worked on on this. So we have a small grocer in town, not like a corner grocer, but maybe like a 15,000 square foot grocery store, one of the old family owned ones. And a new big box grocer chain wants to come to town, needs $800,000 of of subsidy to make that happen. But they're promising, you know, a nice new store, a nice butcher, a nice produce section, a little bit, you know, nicer place. And this is sold as we're growing the tax base, we're increasing wealth, we're providing jobs and, and economic development. How would you react to, to that kind of transaction? Well, well, there's several things. First of all, I would wade into each and every one of those classes or categories that you created. It's like, are you really growing jobs or did they just move from the little small uh, grocery store over to the new grocery store? Secondly, what kind of jobs they were, because grocery stores are a lot like Walmarts. You know, they're eight, ten dollars an hour, usually not much benefits. Thirdly, you get back into that sort of moral argument is you're taking my taxes and giving it to them. At very least, at least we need to compete on a on a level playing field. You know, if if they think it's such a good thing to move into town, 
let them move in and, and, you know, build the grocery store? Why do they need subsidy from us? So there would be a lot of just kind of parts of that argument that I'd wade into and say, is that real? By and large, uh, the studies I've seen, this is not a grocery store, but the Walmart studies I've seen said, ultimately, they ship more money out of town than they're bringing money into town. So they are actually on the drain side of a community uh, because that money's gone back to Bentonville, Arkansas, and three of the wealthiest, what, top 12 families in the country are, are Waltons because of you know, the way that works. I'm not putting value statements on. I'm just making statements about how it's worked. And so I, I think that's the starting point of understanding how it works. Then you can come back with public policy of, well, it should work a certain way. I, I'm pretty much in the how it works right now business. The drain analogy is a fascinating one because as, as soon as I started to grasp this from an economic standpoint, you know, the, there's always the people that make the case and, and I respect them. Uh, you know, we, we can't hurt Main Street. It's ma and pa jobs. And boy, I remember growing up here in my small town where you, you couldn't buy shoes. You had to go an hour south to buy shoes. And all of a sudden we got Walmart and I can get shoes now. It was a hard argument for me to make that our standard of living wasn't better. But yet I look around and I could see the money being passed around versus the money draining out. And we sure have created a lot of draining out enterprises. Is this how you look at it now? Because I, I've evolved to kind of look at it as the bathtub analogy. Is that a good place to start? That's at least how I think. <laughs> Let me make a statement about commoditized industries. Commoditized industries drive down prices. So, so you got two things going on. What I've always said is you can't pay high wages and have low prices. You get one or the other. Which, which one do you want? In, in a Walmart situation, nobody gets high wages. Not nobody, but a lot of people don't get high wages. But they drove down the prices. So in some ways, that's a creation of wealth. Because I had an income of you know $15,000 and I could buy a certain amount of things. And all of a sudden, Walmart has driven down the price of the TV to Guys, the big screens are down in the $200 range. In some ways, that's creation of wealth. So I go through life kind of a foot in both camps out there. I understand that the capitalistic system drives down prices, and that benefits people. That, that allows more people to buy stuff. But the cost of doing that is you've got to have low wages. You cannot have high wages and low prices. You get your choice of one or the other, of which one of those that you want. I go through the same thing, and I, I struggle with the same thing, because in a sense, if you're going to have a larger pipe draining out of your economic tub, you better either slow it down from draining out somewhere else, or you better create a, a massive, massive pipe coming in. Yeah, and, and that's what economic gardening is. That's what I think all the time, is that way out of this, Working within the system, this is not saying, you know, we're going to go to socialism or some other kind of system. Working within the free enterprise system, there is a way to solve this. And the way to solve it is to sell innovation, is to make that faucet bigger and make the amount of money that's coming in on that faucet. You solve that single problem in any community, almost everything else falls in place. The retail people, you know, they are all doing better. The town's growing, population's growing, jobs are there, the kids don't leave town and go off to the city. All sorts of good things start to happen if you can do that one single thing, and that is increase that faucet. 
And the way you do that is sell innovation, I think. Let's zero in on these stage two companies, because I know what you mean by that, but I want people to, to grasp this in a broad sense. Why is the Ma and Pa coffee shop or pizza place on Main Street not a stage two company and not likely to become one? So let's separate two kinds of companies you have. Companies that sell local markets, so they, they never sell outside the community. They, I'm a restaurant, I'm a printer, I'm a chocolate shop on Main Street, and the people who come here, you know, by and large, are the people who live here. So if you stop and think about that in terms of the bathtub, and you just divided the bathtub into a bunch of little uh, compartments, those compartments being all the little shops and stores in there, what's the maximum amount of water you can ever, ever get? It's whatever water's in that bathtub. It, you can't ever get beyond that. And so if you can't get beyond that, you can't grow. And so that's the difference between, you know, getting out of the bathtub versus being in the bathtub. That There is some amount of money that circulates in town all the time. I, you know, make up some number, $100 million or whatever. But it never, ever, you, you can't grow beyond that. You can, you can grow up to some maximum and then, you know, you only buy so much chocolate. You only go to a restaurant so many times and it's like, okay, we're at the top end. That There's no more money in town that can, that can come to us. That's why you've got to have the money coming in from the outside. All of a sudden, you pour more water into that bathtub, and then everybody's going, wow, business is up. Uh, you know, we've now got more money that, that we've ever made before. And everybody's saying that because there's more money in the bathtub. How is Walmart not a stage two company? Well, they obviously are. So there's stage three and stage four companies, and they're obviously a stage four company. You know, they're, they're a major, major far beyond the, the scaling uh, size. The problem with the, particularly the stage four companies, is they're creating a jobs, but a lot of those jobs are outside the United States. You know, they're, they're, I mean, Apple and Walmart buy stuff from Asia. They're over there in the commoditized part of the world because they get cheap prices over there. So, you know, that, that's a whole different world, those stage four companies. The stage two companies are saying, we're here, we're local. We're starting out to scale. We've gotten past the survival stage. The, the, the whole tone of a stage one company is just trying to survive. It's just trying to get more sales and you know trying to figure out what business is about and all the fundamentals. The stage two companies are beyond that. They are now in, okay, we've got the basics of business down. We don't need business plans. We don't need to be told how to buy our insurance, that sort of thing. What we need to do is figure out how, how to grow. Just like, you know, Walmart at one time was a little tiny store. I think he started in Arkansas, or maybe even started in Oklahoma. He grew up in Kingfisher, Oklahoma. And it was a little one, one-time store. But, but they're in an entirely different kind of category in my mind. Different, different issues, different problems. Uh, than, than the stage two companies. Well, well let me ask yeah. you this, and you, you kind of started to hit on it a little bit, but if I'm the local economic development person or I'm the, uh, the mayor or the council member or the, the person active in the community that wants to see economic growth and job creation and prosperity, what in the world do these stage two companies need? These are entrepreneurs. They're doing stuff. Like, what do, what do they need from me? What what we said in Littleton is we the public sector does three things pretty darn good. We we obviously do infrastructure. 
you know, we build the streets, we run the fire departments and that sort of stuff. Uh, the second thing is we're pretty good at connections. We, we, we know almost everybody in town, and we can put you in connections. The, the amount of times that we made introductions, just that little factor alone was was pretty amazing. But the big thing that we said we were good at is we're good at information. We generate information. We know where to find information. And that's what took us down the road of, of this thing starting to work is we can find markets for you. We can do competitor intelligence work, the kinds of things that the big boys do and everybody needs, but you probably can't do it. You're not big enough. You've got 10, 20, 30 people. Everybody's busy out in the shop and doing the accounting and you know loading the truck and all the stuff that you do. You know, it's unlikely that you're going to have researchers in there like we have, and it's unlikely. We, we have a 100 uh, different database services we subscribe to. You're not going to subscribe to that because, first of all, you're not going to be using them regularly, and you probably don't even know they exist out there. All of that high-end, sophisticated stuff, we just moved down the, the food chain to people who needed it just as bad as the, the big corporations did but never had access to it. So that third leg, that information leg, really turned out to be the strongest thing that we did, you know, as, as a public entity. I'm going to say this this way, and I, I want you to push back on it, okay? Um, huh? It sounds a little gimmicky that all we got to do is take these entrepreneurs, give them I information about markets and competitors, uh, help them be more competitive in the marketplace that way by, by just giving them this, this data that they didn't otherwise have access to, there's got to be more to it. It can't work like that, Chris. Push back. No, it's not. That's not the total package, and we'd never argue that. There's two other big things that are missing there. One of them is financing, and one of them is workforce, and we don't do either one of those, mostly because there's other agencies that are geared up and, and, and do that stuff very well. All of those things are important part of the, uh, you know, the menu, the, the recipe for, for making this happen. And But I want to tell you, uh, I've got a computer full of testimonials from companies that just say they, they can't believe, first of all, what we could do for them in such a short amount of time, and secondly, what an impact it had on them. Because not only are we providing this information, these five frameworks that we use with kind of solve problems that they, they know at a gut level that they've got there, but they just didn't know how to think about it. It's, it's kind of like temperament. We knew that was an issue, but we just never laid it out in you know such clear language and uh, have a pathway forward of how to use it to you know to get the problem solved. So between the information and between the frameworks, those are like adrenaline shots. They're, you know you're not going to live on them. You need other things when you grow. You've got to build systems. You got to hire people. You got a lot of other things. But that's what entrepreneurs do. That, that's why entrepreneurs, you know, make money is because they do those hard things. They, they stay up at night and don't get sleep, <laughs> get divorced, all the things that happen when you're under stress of an, being an entrepreneur. I want to ask you two questions. The, the first one is, in your expertise, when you interact with a, a, a place for the first time, how do you know they're ready to go? How do you know that this is a community, this is a city, uh, this is a group of people that are well-tempered and ready to go in an economic gardening program? I, I think there's a couple factors. Most of the people that end up in our program have known about us for a long time. Uh, sometimes, you know, the, the lead time on uh, 
selling an economic gardening project sometimes is up to 10 years. I have been places and made presentations and, you know, it's just got a slow fuse and, and somewhere out of the blue, you know, a few years later, sometimes a long, you know, eight, 10 years later, they'll call me up and they go, you came and talked to us, you know, back in 1990 or whatever. So a lot of the people that come to us uh, have known about us. I've got uh, pretty big uh, social media accounts. There's a thousand people on uh, a listserv, and, and that listserv is it goes clear back to the mid '90s, shortly after the internet was established. So those people have been on there forever and ever. They, they you know, they know and they've stayed with that listserv. Uh, I've got big, uh, you know, LinkedIn accounts and Twitter accounts. So there's a lot of people out there that kind of have an exposure to what we're doing. And we also run free webinars. We also do training. And, and you know, X percent of those people will go through that process. So by the time they get to us and say, yeah, we're ready, this is not new to them. They've had a long time to think about it. But here's the other group that comes in, and that is the people that have not been successful recruiting companies, and that is a lot of communities, especially rural communities, especially inner-city communities, economically distressed communities all, all throughout that Midwest. They just get to the point of saying, we're, we're not having any success trying to get people to come here. We might as well sit down and take a look at what we got and see if we can grow what we got. That stream of people is also pretty big, people who just say, this just makes more sense given our situation. If you're Austin, if you're Denver, Boulder, you know, San Diego, uh, Chapel Hill, Boston, those kind of places, they don't have to worry about it. The increasing returns has kicked in for those communities. It's working whether you've got an economic developer or not. But all these outlying communities, you know, they're, they're looking at a pretty bleak situation. Here's my follow-up to that then. I'm buying into this. I'm ready. I, I want to do this. How do I get started? What are the first steps that I should take? Basically, we contract with economic development agencies. So if somebody contacts me is kind of the starting point. I ship out some materials, make sure they understand. We always do pilot projects at, at first. So there's a five-company pilot project. And what we say is don't jump into this you know, with big budget, big expectations until you know what it is. And so by running those pilot projects, you get a chance to, to see what we do. You see the reports that we're producing. You go talk to the CEO. You see if jobs pop out. You know, you're going to get the end of those five companies, and you're going to have a good feeling about, yeah, this is a good program, or no, it's not what we thought it was, and you know, we'll shut it down and go do something else. So we're real careful about not getting people too far out on a, on a limb because it's a political process also even though we, we always say we're not a political program we're a science-based program but uh, whoever's ma making that decision to put some money into this and the uh, engagements they run 42.90 per company so five companies is what are that multiplies 23,000 something like that that's not a big number, you know, for most economic development agencies. They're willing to take that kind of risk and say, yeah, let's go run this for a little bit and just see what it's all about, see if it's making a difference. You know, if, if the CEO, you know, raves on about the whole thing and, and we can start to see, yeah, they, oh, they're starting to add jobs. That's an organic way of, of growing this program. I, I think it's a lot healthier way, too, than, than overselling it and, and trying to, make it a, uh, uh, you know, we'll solve all of your problems, silver bullet, magic answer to things. It's not. I always tell people, it, 
you know, if you don't have a, a, a lifetime career to invest in economic gardening, don't go down this road. I think of myself as a bricklayer. It's like if you come up and, and saw me in any given hour, it's like, you know, I'm putting two or three bricks in here, run, running a, you know, a line to make sure they're all, you know, in, in place. At the end of the day, we got a course of bricks. At the end of the weeks, you know, we might have a wall up. At the end of the month, maybe we got a house. At the end of the year, we got a neighborhood. But on any given day, you come and visit me. I'm doing, you know, one, two, three jobs at a time working with one company. But over a long period of time, the places like Louisiana and, oh, Rochester, uh, New York, uh, that have been running this program for years, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, uh, those numbers are starting to add up. It's starting to look like a neighborhood and not a course of bricks. You call this economic gardening, and I know that's for a reason. If I have to eat tomorrow, I don't go plant seeds today. But if I want things to be really bountiful in the future, I'm going to spend some time gardening. I mean, that, that's the analogy, right? Yeah, it is. And nothing happens fast in a garden. <laughs> if you plant a seed and go out there the next day and go, where, where is it? You know, you, you got to have a different mindset to go down this road. Obviously, there's some big places doing this. I know a while back you were doing work in Florida, the statewide, and the numbers were impressive. I mean, the pennies being put into economic gardening compared to the dollars being put into regular economic development and the returns being, you know, very comparable. It it was astounding, the results. That Florida project, they're getting about a nine to one return on the dollars they put in. You're putting maybe 1500 to $2,000 into a company. A standard recruiting, you know, might be ten to fifteen thousand. If you recruit a an automobile plant, I mean, it's a quarter million. It's three hundred thousand dollars. I mean, for a million dollars, you get four jobs. Florida gave some money to uh, Scripps, and I think that came about to a million dollars per job. And you know, Scripps is high end and got a lot of potential payoff on it. But we kind of joked, you know, behind the scenes is hey, give us a million dollars and we'll guarantee a job. <laughs> right, <laughs> That's <what> right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll guarantee you four jobs, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we'll guarantee you a high-paying job. I could pay somebody $100,000 if you're going to give me a million to right. produce it. Right, One of the things that we believe is economic developers don't create jobs. Entrepreneurs create jobs. All we do is enrich that environment and help them do that job creation better. That's the business we're in. You know, I get really nervous when they talk about, uh, oh, well, we produce, you know, 4,000 jobs in, in Florida. And it's like, I didn't produce any jobs down there. I helped some other people produce jobs. Right. You start the book talking about uh, Wakita. Is that how you say the name of this place? Yep. Yep. Wakita, Oklahoma. It's not a place I'm familiar with. And, and I... <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> well, I, I just want you to be able to talk a little bit about the wide range of places that these ideas apply to, because I, the idea of chaos and, and economic development and entrepreneurs and stage two companies, it's easy to look at Seattle and, and Silicon Valley and see entrepreneurs. It's sometimes hard for people in a little city like mine in central Minnesota to say, Oh, we have entrepreneurs here too, but we do, and in large amounts. 
Yeah, that, that's absolutely the case. And that's one of the things that I was worried when I first started this out. We were running it in a little town of, you know, 40,000 suburb of Denver, and, um, and, and we won the Florida project. And here, you know, Florida's the fourth uh, most populous state, and I'm going, oh, crap, what if there was something about, you know, being in the West or being a suburb or, you know, that, that made it work out here that wasn't going to work there, but it did. And from there, the next project was in Kansas. And so Florida's worrying about us being too little and, and not, you know, it's not working there. Kansas was worried about us being too big. Their towns were all like 2,500 people and less. But we found stage two companies in all of those towns and we worked with them. Marienthal, Kansas has got a hundred people, but there was a farming operation that grew organic wheat and they sold it to organic bakeries in Boston and up and down the East Coast. And so, you know, after I came out of that, I'm going, I'm not worried anymore about whether we're going to find growth companies in these towns. It happens in all kinds of places. The little town that I grew up in is actually, if you saw the movie Twister, the town that gets destroyed at the end is Waukeda. And they were in town for, I don't know, a year and a half filming that movie. And uh, there's actually a scene in there where uh, they're having uh, stakes at Aunt Meg's house and the weather comes on and this F-4 tornado is coming and they, they run out the cars and the helicopter pulls back up to the water tower and it says, Waukee, that tower is right across the street from where my dad lives. So the whole background of this is I grew up in a town that was dying and I didn't know that at the time I was there. The book starts out with a little story about uh, growing up there and, every, you know, so I'm, I'm a baby boomer. My dad comes back from the South Pacific and the town was bustling. The stores were full and the, all the ball teams won. I mean, it was just like a Walt Disney movie. And I kept thinking, why couldn't that go on forever? That's what's haunted me all my life is why did that little town that I grew up in die? It, it's, there's a couple hundred people live there and probably the average age is 80. I don't know, maybe even more. But I, but I kept thinking about what was the processes that it went through that it quit growing and that, that it died. That's what led me down this road, you know, 20 and 30 and 50 years later of, of trying to do all of this and trying, first of all, trying to understand it. What, what was the system that was at work that was causing that? And then secondly, what, what can you do about it? So the, the whole thing came out of the, uh, and I never intended to be an economic developer. I'm not even a, a registered professional. I don't belong to the association. I don't go to the conferences. I just kept thinking about that issue about why do the the Clevelands and the Daytons of the world, you know, the, the St. Louis's, why do those places decline? And why does Denver just booming like crazy? There's got to be, I don't know, 35, 40 construction cranes in Denver right now. That that's high-rise buildings. It's just all over the place. People are pouring into Denver. Young people are coming in here like crazy. It, it, it was that phenomena that just fascinated me around the clock. Well, and this kind of gets to the last question I want to ask you, but you, you, you jog in my mind. I, I was up in this little city of Emily, Minnesota, 800 people. Its entire economic engine was one block in town where there was a gas station and a realty shop and a couple of, you know, like a sad restaurant tourist town, basically like people would go up and stay in a lake cabin. I was having lunch with uh, a bunch of the old timers there. We were talking about economic development and, and the one guy said, yeah, we used to have a florist in town and uh, used to have a dry cleaner. And they started listing all the businesses they had. And it was just business after business, you know, hardware store. It, it, it was this endless list of businesses. 
you know, I said, when was this? And they're like, well, the 1950s, 1960s. And I went and looked, and the city at the time was about 450 people. How in the world do they have that many people? So you talked earlier about the bathtub and, and the different compartments, you know, the, uh, the Ma and Pa coffee shop and the florist and the pizza place, uh, all being kind of compartments in that tub. If I'm listening to you today and I'm one of those people, how does economic gardening, how do these stage two businesses, how do they make my life better? Well, they bring money in from the outside. The description you gave was the exact description of my hometown, but they were all compartments in the tub. So, so the money was, was static. The, the, the amount of water is static. It's not growing any whatsoever, assuming that you didn't have a faucet in the drain, and, and it, we're just moving it back and forth. And every once in a while, you know, we're taking care of each other's needs. And it's like, well, you're, you're a good repairman, and I'm not good at that. And, you know, he's got the uh, auto mechanic place, and, and I, but I got a print shop, and he can't do print shops and that sort of stuff. So, so we're taking care of each other's needs, but it's that question of I need something that is not made in this town. There is no town in the entire world that makes everything it needs. New York City does not make its own cars. It doesn't even make its own carpet. They're mostly made down in Dalton, Georgia. And so it does not matter what size the town is, how big it is. No town makes everything it needs. And the second you go outside of town to get something that you need, I need an automobile. Okay, send my money to Detroit or send my money to Alabama, wherever they're making it. Uh, and, and it comes into town, that's going out the drain. And what happened in the little town that I was in is all those wheat farmers just got more and more efficient. And, you know, there was a farm every quarter when I grew up. And today there's probably maybe five or six massive farmers farming. Instead of farming one quarter, they're farming 20 quarters out there. And when all those farmers left, they quit going into town on Saturday night and buying at those stores. And all of a sudden, that money that was coming in from the outside started to dry up. And so those local market stores started to fail. So now now the meat shop fails. Now the newspaper shop fails, you know, on and on and on. That happens all over the country. I, I'm of the opinion that that's core of what's going on in the politics of this country. Is I, that I couldn't agree more. Life getting economically hard because the way that system is working is driving, in, in my mind, a, a lot of the political discussions. But there's a way out of that, and it's, it's working within the system. It's working within free enterprise. It's working within capitalism, and that is get back on the innovation train. The second you can convince a kid to stay in town and, you know, he gets on the Internet and, you know, maybe he's got he's doing coding for somebody or building websites or maybe he's doing engineering drawings and uh, he's doing it for you know somebody in a, in a big city and they they send him a check that check coming in is new water coming into that town just repeat that over and over again do more of that find kids that can sell to the outside world and and the fortunes of that town will turn around i would absolutely guarantee it you're listening to chris gibbons the book is Economic Gardening. You can follow Chris's work and get a copy of the book at economicgardening.org. And, and let me just say as a closing thought, I've said this many times and I, I want to say it. I tell everybody I can, if, if you're not pursuing an economic gardening strategy, you're missing out. If you're not engaged with this program, it's hard to take your economic development program seriously because this is kind of like foundational to how you grow a local economy. So I, I just want to thank you for all the work you do. It's, 
I've been on that mailing list since the early 2000s, and it's impressive, and I, uh, I can't say enough good things about it. So thank you. Thank you so much. You bet. Good to talk to you again, Chuck. Thanks for taking the time. Take care. Bye-bye. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.